Well, we are continuing our study in Philippians this morning. Most of the way through chapter 1, I've personally been intrigued as we've considered Paul's motivations, the driving factors behind his ability to rejoice in spite of the difficulty of his circumstances. Last week, we considered his joy over the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel was still going forward in spite of his imprisonment. He had the opportunity to preach to those around him. He noted that others were encouraged in the Lord to preach the gospel on account of his imprisonment. So even if he wasn't out, out and about among the people able to preach the gospel, he knew the word was still going forward. Knowing that the gospel was still going forward was a great encouragement to him. And it's something that he used to encourage the believers at Philippi. He says, as you think of me, don't think of me sitting, rotting in prison. Know that the thing to which I have been called, the thing that you've partnered in ministry with me for, the, the, the spread of the gospel, know that that's still going forward. I rejoice in that, and you should too. I'll be honest, though. Whenever I think about sitting in prison, I don't have happy thoughts. When I think about being removed from my loved ones, being unjustly accused, being confined against my will for doing something that is actually right, I just, I don't get happy thoughts from that. Maybe that's just me. But as we move into this next section, we see Paul moving beyond discussing joy to speaking of a certain kind of confidence that he has that things will turn out favorably for him. How does he do that? Where does that come from? Where does that boldness, that confidence in the face of what are, humanly speaking, insurmountable odds, where does that come from? Does that come from friends? Again, we talked about the fact that he was rejoicing over his friends. Does that come from just knowing that your calling is still being fulfilled, the gospel is going forward? I think it's a little more than that. I saw an article this week on a neuroscience website of all places, right? Like I frequent neuroscience websites. The study was titled, um, uh, it's a study that examines the link between accountability to God and psychological well-being. In it, one of the co-authors of the study is quoted as saying the following. It says that people who embrace theistic accountability see themselves as answerable to God and they go on to say that they welcome responsibilities that are associated with their faith and view accountability to God as a gift that helps them to lead happy and successful lives. I think that pretty accurately summarizes what we've been seeing and hearing from Paul's description here. It's not just that his friends were an encouragement to him. It's not just that the gospel was going forth that was an encouragement to him, even though those were both good things. But what was driving Paul, and I believe what we'll confirm as we go throughout the course of the letter, what was driving Paul primarily throughout all of this is his relationship to Jesus. It's ultimately that his deliverance will come from Jesus, that he lived his life for the glory of Jesus, that even in death, Jesus will be exalted. And if he remains on in the flesh, he knows that he'll be able to do further ministry that will further exalt Jesus. Paul's focus and his attention was on Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus is what drove him through all of the difficulty of his pain, his trial. If 
Follow along with me as I read again this morning. We're staying in that same section of 12 through 20, 26. We'll get to 27 through 30 um, in a future message. Um, but we're really at the last half of that section in 18 through 26 is where we're going to be this morning. I'll read all of 12 through 26 just for context. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Read along with me. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Our Father, once again, we, we thank you, we praise you for your word, which is true, which sanctifies us, and we pray that you would sanctify us this morning. Your servants are listening. Father, we pray that you would speak. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, there are three movements of thought in this section that each center on Christ as the primary motivation and source of joy. First, at the end of verse 18 through verse 19, Paul says, I rejoice knowing that ultimately my deliverance will come from Jesus Christ. Second, in verses 20 through 24, he says, I can rejoice no matter what happens, whether life or death, because I've lived for Christ, and so he'll get the glory either way. And third, in 25 and 26, he says, I can rejoice in confidence that I will be delivered from this, so Christ can continue to be glorified through my ministry to his church. It's all about Christ for Paul. Again, his relationship with Christ compelled him and comforted him through the most difficult seasons of his life. Let's look at that first section. Again, Paul rejoices knowing that ultimately his deliverance will come from Christ. Look again at the end of verse 18 through 19. He says again there, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He reiterates, yes, I will rejoice. This phrase forms a bridge between these two sections, the previous one and this one. 
He's continuing to rejoice in the gospel ministry. He wants them to know again that he's not sitting wallowing in prison. He's not complaining. He uses the time that he has to write to this dear church to build them up in the faith and to give glory to Christ. He states confidently, yes, and I will rejoice. But why? He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this deliverance that Paul speaks of is not his present circumstances, but rather a consideration of the future. He uses a word there translated deliverance that's generally used to refer to salvation in general. In other words, he's looking ahead. He knows that ultimately there will be deliverance. No matter what happens here, no matter what happens in this life, he says, I will be delivered in the end from all danger. He makes a similar statement in 2 Timothy 4.18 where he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. He knew that there were evil deeds. He knew that those who had him captive were capable of evil deeds against him. And yet he was confident that their evil deeds would not affect the good that God has in store for him. Deliverance is coming. This is, in fact, the heartbeat of every true believer. Deliverance is coming. When I preached the introduction of this letter, I mentioned that one of the themes of the letter has to do with the reality that believers have a forward-looking faith. Paul said that this way, when he describes the church of Thessalonica and their salvation after he had preached the gospel to them, in 1 Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul says this, They themselves, meaning those in the surrounding area, gave this kind of report about the church. They themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you want a good description of salvation, what salvation looks like, When someone comes to faith in Christ, what happens in their life? This is it. They heard the gospel and believed. They turned to God from idols. Now, maybe we don't worship idols, physical idols these days. Certainly some people still do, but there are other idols that we have, that we worship, that we treasure above anything else in this life, whether it's our money, whether it's clothing, any kind of possession, other people. Um, Whatever it is, we have idols. And when we come to faith in Christ, what we're doing is we're turning from those idols and worshiping those things to what Paul says is serving the living and true God. And there's only one. And not only turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God, but also to wait for his son from heaven. He said, when people see the church at Thessalonica after they came into faith in Christ, one of the things that became evident is that they were waiting for Jesus to come back. In other words, a description of believers, something that should be inherent in the faith of any believer, is again that forward-looking expectation. That Jesus is coming. Deliverance is coming. No matter what. This is the child sitting at the door waiting for mom or dad to return home from being away. This is the loved one who is receiving their father, their mother, their brother, their sister who's coming back from a long tour of duty, right? This anxious longing, this expectation that they're coming back. And when you finally see them, there's so much joy and elation. 
But who are we waiting for? We're waiting for Jesus. We're waiting for the one whom God raised from the dead, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. We believe in him. We trust in him. We look to his salvation, his shed blood on the cross to deliver us from the wrath to come, from God's wrath. I like how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So set your hope fully on that, believer. Well, back to our text, Paul says deliverance is coming, and I'm trusting the Lord for that. I know that it will come no matter what happens in this life. Again, he says, I will rejoice... For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Another interesting theme or principle that we see running through this letter is the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Paul will get into that a little bit more later when he tells them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says he's going to say, work out your salvation. You have responsibility. But remember that God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. In our section, Paul says, I know that I will be delivered by Christ. And I know that because your prayers are going forth and the spirit helps me. I have that confidence, that assurance because of his work through your prayers in the spirit. That's why we pray, beloved. We pray because God ordains the means as well as the ends. Of course, he ordains for us to have joy. He ordains for us to have confidence in the faith. He ordains for us to endure in the midst of suffering. But he also ordains for us to pray for one another. And as we pray for one another, God works through that. It's important for us to remember. I wonder how often we think on that truth. In all of our difficulties, all of our distresses, All of the awful things that may happen to us in this life, in the end, we win. And we win because Jesus wins. Because Jesus is Lord and because Jesus will come to rescue us. That's a truth that we can hold on to, beloved. That's a truth we can rejoice in. Well, moving on to the next section in our second point, again, he says, I can rejoice no matter what happens, whether life or death, because I've lived for Christ until he'll get the glory. Look again at verses 20 through 21. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Listen again to these words. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I mentioned earlier that he displays a significant amount of confidence in this passage. And we hear that confidence pouring forth from those words. I read that quote earlier that said that accountability to God helps people to welcome their responsibilities and lead happy and successful lives. I would say also that those who live with an awareness of their accountability to God, their accountability to Christ, those will have a greater confidence in life so that even when they 
suffer the most dire circumstances, even to the point of death, they'll still have confidence. And they'll still be able to boldly proclaim their faith in Jesus. To be clear, this is not a confidence in his own ability. The confidence and hope that we have are ultimately rooted in who God is. Biblical hope is just that. It's not a wishful thinking. It is an expectation of good based on the reality of who God is. One author put it this way, Biblical hope brims with certainty because it is based on the fact that God is and that God has underwritten our future. Paul is confident. He's confident that Christ will be honored, meaning that Christ will be glorified in his life. We talked about that before. For Christ to be glorified in us is for him to be made big, for him to be magnified in us, right? I've used the example before of those jumbotron, those massive screens that they have in stadiums when people go to um, watch their favorite sporting team. Um, And you can see a certain amount on the field, but you look up at the big screen and it it makes the picture a lot bigger for you. It makes it broader for you. We have these massive big screen televisions in our homes nowadays because we need to see things bigger. Well, that's what it means to honor Jesus Christ with your life. It means that when people see you, they see him, that he becomes bigger, that he is made bigger by looking at you. When people see you, do they see Jesus? Paul was confident in that. I wonder, are we confident in the same? Have we lived our lives in such a way? Moving on, he also says, I will not at all be ashamed. That is the confession of someone who's confident that they've lived their lives without regret, having pursued the glory of Christ to the degree that they're not worried about anything. Not even his coming judgment. Do you believe or realize that we will face the judgment of Christ when he returns? 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. And Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He says, I live my life and I preach the gospel in the way that I do. And I run hard after Jesus Christ and preaching the gospel and fulfilling my ministry precisely because I know that I'm going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you, believer, live your life consciously considering if Jesus will be pleased with you when he returns? Do you think about that? I hope to remind you today and to persuade you today to consider that truth daily, not just on Sunday when we get together, daily. And that if you have been living consciously, knowing that you will give an account for every deed done in the body, every thought, every spoken word, every action, if you haven't been living that way before, you need to from now on. Again, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We do not fear the final judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But we do know that we will have to give an account before the Lord for everything that we've done as believers, for the stewardship of our lives. Well, Paul was aware of the coming judgment of Christ. That's why he ran so hard. Again, that's why he labored so much for the gospel. That's why he endured. And knowing 
that he lived his life in that way is why he faced the possibility of death with confidence, I will not at all be put to shame. Remember also last week, there were those who were seeking to afflict him in his chains, likely doing so, hoping to shame him for being imprisoned for the gospel. They were probably hoping to discourage him into thinking that, in fact, he was a false apostle, not really doing the will of God. But Paul says, you know what? I've lived my life for Christ's sake. I know that with confidence. My imprisonment for the cause of Christ is not a matter of shame, and neither is anything else I've done for him. I'm confident that no matter what happens, even if I should die in prison, Jesus will be glorified. He lived this life with that confidence. Look again back at the text. He says, Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, as always, nothing has changed. This difficult circumstances, again, sitting in prison hasn't changed that. He says, I'm confident in the way I've lived. Again, as we're thinking about joy, I wonder if you want to have joy in your life. Do you consider that? Do you consider living your life unashamedly for Christ's sake, for his glory, for his purposes, fulfilling your calling in him? Not for the sake of someone else, right? Not for your parents, not for your children, not for your friends, not for your peers, not for prestige or fame or fortune. Not just to be able to come to church and say that you are a member of a church in good standing and you give your tithes and you participate in the church picnic and all the functions that happen. Not just to be able to say those things, but so that Jesus will say at the end of your life, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you live your life today that way? Because everything we do today counts for eternity. That's clear from God's word. We will be held accountable. I wonder if Jesus were to return today, visibly, to judge the living and the dead, and we were to stand before him, how would he evaluate our lives? How would he evaluate our life just over the past week? Just last night, just this morning, have you been grumbling or complaining about something that you don't like? Have you maligned someone? Have you let your eyes wander, your heart wander somewhere it should not have? Have you coveted someone else's property or person? Are you living a life of no regrets to the end that you are confident, eagerly expecting, hopeful, fully encouraged that Jesus Christ will be magnified in your life? If not, why not? If not, think about this. That fiery trial that you're going through that seemed to have come from nowhere may not be all that out of place. It may be that the Lord has brought that fiery, discouraging, seemingly destructive trial into your life precisely to purge you of whatever it is that you're holding on to that doesn't honor him. Because he does that. Peter talks about trials as a refining fire. Just as gold as refined, and the process of refining gold, as I've read, is repeatedly putting gold into the fire to burn off all the impurities. And it's said that the goldsmith knows that the gold is at its purest when he can take it out of the fire and see his reflection in it. And likewise, God puts us into the fires at times. And at times, he'll put us in and out of the fire. Not because he doesn't like us, not because he doesn't care, but because he wants to burn off all the impurities 
that we've picked up over the course of our lives. And because ultimately he's looking to see his reflection more clearly in us. Moving on again, he says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is Paul's perspective. He says, for to me, this is why I have lived my life this way. This is why I have confidence that I will not be put to shame in any of what I've done for Christ. Because to me, to live is Christ. We touched on that a bit earlier. To live is Christ. To live is to live for Christ. It is to serve Christ. It is to be devoted to him. For the trajectory of my life to be in pursuit of him. But it's more than that. The reality is that Jesus Christ is our life as believers. He is the source of our life as believers. Apart from him, we have no true life as believers. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's the source of our life. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Christ is our life. Elsewhere in Galatians, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not just that we ought to live for Christ. That would be enough. It's that we have been crucified with Christ. The former life is dead. The life we now live, we live by faith in him. It is a new life. So we must lift it differently than our former life. There should be a difference between when we've put our faith in Christ to now. Paul says, I live by faith in him who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live for Jesus. To me, to live is Christ. Again, I wonder how often we think about that. How often do we consider the fact that we have been crucified with Christ? The life that we now live is not the same kind of life that we had before. It's qualitatively different. This is what Jesus means when he talks about being born again or born from above in John chapter 3. He says you are given a new kind of life. It's different. It ought to be different. The way you think ought to be different. The way you speak ought to be different. The things you pursue ought to be different. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. It's gain, meaning it is a valuable commodity. It's something to be desired. Now again, how can Paul say that to die is gain? I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but God is the gospel. Again, what that author meant by indicating that God is the gospel is that, again, heaven wouldn't be heaven if God weren't there. The good news is that we get to know more of God. We get to see more of God. We get to have a genuine relationship with God. And therefore, heaven means that we'll just be all the closer to him. If that is true, then to die would be gain because it would be to gain more of God. It would be to be ushered in the presence of God. Elsewhere, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Of course, in the end, we will be raised from the dead. That is a promise. Paul talks about that significantly in 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll be given the same kind of glorified body that Jesus has. 
But the point is that death is gain for the believer. That's how we look at death. We don't look at it as something to be avoided or shunned. The process of death is certainly not all that appealing. Now, let me clarify here what Paul is not saying, because I think that could be easily confused. Paul is not suicidal. He has not given up on life. He doesn't look at life with a sour attitude, having become disgruntled with life, whether because of difficult circumstances or difficult people. He's not here moping about, completely depressed, seeing no way out of his depression and discouragement. This is not Paul longing for death to take away the pain. Scripture does acknowledge anxiety and even severe discouragement or depression in the life of believers, but it does not ever affirm or condone suicide. In fact, when Paul refers to death in chapter 3, he refers to it as the upward call of God in Christ, meaning that God calls the believer home. It's on his terms, his timing. That's how it works. Thoughts of suicide are something that should be addressed quickly. If you know someone or if you yourself have come to that point, you need to address it quickly and not allow it to linger. But that's not what's happening in this passage. Again, Paul is not discouraged. He's not depressed. He is, to the contrary, considering what he says in verse 23, that being with Christ is far better than anything else. That's the issue for Paul. It's not escape from reality or depression. It is a sincere love for Jesus, for who he is, for all that he has done. Paul says in Philippians 3.8 that there is a surpassing value in knowing Christ Jesus. Paul says, that's what I want. I want more of Jesus because Jesus is far better. I think that those of us who would agree with that truth still have a hard time with it on some level. We tend to hold so tightly to life because either we haven't lived it well for Christ's sake, and maybe we fear his judgment or his evaluation of us, or perhaps we're holding so tightly to the things of the world that we think we'll miss out on something here. I like this quote from Spurgeon as he commented on this text. He says, but death, Paul felt, would free him from sin and from all doubts as to his state in the present and in the future. It would be gain to him, for then he would no longer be tossed upon the stormy sea. He would be safe upon the land where he was bound. It would be gain to him, for then he would be free from all temptations, both from within and from without. It would be gain to him, for then he would be delivered from all his enemies. There would be no cruel Nero, no blaspheming Jews, no false brothers. It would be gain to him, for then he would be delivered from all suffering. There would be no more shipwrecks, no more being beaten with rods or being stoned. Dying, too, would be gain for him, for then he would be free from all fear of death. Having once died, he would die no more forever. It would be gain for him. For he would find in heaven better and more perfect friends than he would leave behind on earth. And he would find, above all, his Savior and be a partaker of his glory. I think that's a beautiful summary. There's nothing better here. There's nothing better anywhere. Knowing Christ, being with Christ is far better. 
Back to our text again, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. This conviction led Paul to having a great deal of tension in his heart. He says, I've been, I've been living for Christ, thus there is fruitful labor. And I know that there will be more fruitful labor if I continue, and yet being with Christ is far better. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, he says. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. In these verses, I think we get a, a glimpse into Paul's heart a little bit more. I think we've seen that quite a bit, but we get to hear a little bit more of that emotive language. He says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. He feels being in prison. He's not immune to it. I think sometimes we assume that people like Paul are super spiritual, right? There are these saintly kinds of people, and they have this extra measure of grace. Nothing affects them, but, but that nothing could be farther from the truth. We heard that emotive language earlier from him. We hear it also in passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 41 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day... I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fail and I am not indignant? He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and escaped his hands. It's not been an easy life for Paul. It's been a very difficult life. Paul says, all of this stuff is kind of caught up with me at this moment, at this point. I know I could remain on in the flesh, and I know there would be more fruitful labor, but really I'd rather be with Jesus at this point. I've done a lot. I put in my time, Paul says. To live is Christ. It is to live for him. It is to bear fruit for his glory. But to die is to be with him, to finally have rest. What a choice. Paul says, I do not know what to choose. Certainly he understood that ultimately the choice was not his, but he still struggled in his heart and his mind with all of what was going on around him. Well, it should be abundantly clear by now as we think about this passage again that Christ is Paul's focus. He said again in verses 18 and 19, I can rejoice knowing that ultimately Jesus will rescue me. Verses 20 through 24, I can rejoice that no matter what, whether by life or death, Jesus will be glorified in me. 
And again, he really struggled with that, but he was confident regardless that Jesus would be glorified. Finally, in 25 and 26, he rejoices confident that he will be delivered to continue to glorify Jesus by serving the church. Look at those last two verses. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He says, I've lived my life for his glory. If I die now, I get to see his glory face to face. But, the, but if I live, it's still good. And it's really for your benefit. He says, convinced of this, convinced of that fact, I'm pretty sure I'll remain on with you all. In other words, Paul says, though I do desire to depart to be with Christ, I know that my desires are not the most important thing. He's going to say in just a few verses in chapter 2 that it's significant, it's important for us to look out for not only, not only our own interest, but also the interests of others. And Paul models that here. He says, my desire is to be with Christ because that's far better, but I know that it's more necessary for you that I remain. He is convinced that the Lord will grant him release, that the Lord will deliver him from his present predicament also, precisely because it's good for the believers among whom he served. Often when we're in the midst of trials, we pray fervently to be released from the trial for our own sake because it's too difficult or we feel it's too burdensome for us. Paul here is confident that the Lord would deliver him, not for his own sake, but for the sake of others. Again, he was sure of his role, of his calling, of the importance of the gospel, and that extended to his responsibilities for building the church. And he knows that if he remains, he's able to return to them, that he will be able to continue building the church and bear fruit for the glory of Christ. He says, I'm convinced and will remain for your progress and joy in the faith. He spoke of the progress of the gospel earlier. Now he refers to the progress of the believers in the faith. The progress of the gospel and the progress of believers who trust in the gospel are both his concern and both a part of his ministry. I mentioned that again last week when we looked at Matthew 28, that that's all a part of the gospel ministry that Christ has commended to us that we would be about preaching the gospel and baptizing those who believe, that we would be about teaching further those who believe to obey all of what Christ commanded. That's the whole ministry of the church. Paul understood that, and he was convinced that his ministry was not over yet. Look again at verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Again, the focus for him was always Christ. It is a ministry that he was given by Christ. He refers to the glory that will be given to Christ when he's able to return and to build again into the lives of believers. In other words, it wasn't just that he would get to see them again face to face, but that he would have fruit. He'd be able to bear fruit in their lives. He'd be able to build into them so that they might give glory to Christ. And I'm sure I've asked you this before, but when you come to the gathering, beloved, do you see your responsibility to your brothers and sisters to build them up, to use those gifts that you've been given to build up the body of Christ? Do you see that as a part of your ministry to glorify Jesus in this life? Do you see your coming and gathering together and using your gifts to, to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ as an opportunity to glorify Christ, to magnify him? We read earlier from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and there Paul talks about the significance of our ministry to one another. 
And the main point of that passage is that spiritual growth doesn't happen unless we are all doing our part. That analogy of, of the church being the body of Christ is significant. We all have bodies, and we understand that if one part of our body is hurting or suffering or missing, it affects the whole. If you're missing a part of your body or not able to use a part of your body, it affects your whole life, and you have to adjust to it. Likewise, in the church, God has gifted each one of us. When we come to faith in Christ, we're all gifted. And he gifts each one of us so that we can contribute to the good of the body. And so if we're not contributing to the good of the body, the body is weakened. And the body suffers. That's why it's so important for us to be here Sunday after Sunday. That's why it's so important for us to be engaged with each other. To know what's going on in each other's lives. To be praying with and for each other. To be asking each other those probing questions. Not just, hey, how you doing? I get into that rut. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Okay, yeah, I'm doing good too. And then we just keep on going. But asking those more probing questions, getting into each other's lives, when you don't see someone here on Sunday, call them during the week. Show that you care. Show that you know you are accountable to God for your brother or sister. Because we are. That's what it means to be a member of the church to be a member of the body of Christ. That's how it works. Paul is here modeling that for us. We don't come to church just for ourselves. We don't come here just to have our particular needs met. We come here because someone else needs to hear our words, needs to see our face, needs to hear us singing that particular song that's meaningful to them, that encourages them. They need to hear and experience the effect of the spiritual gift that Christ has given you for his church. Again, back to our text, it was all about Christ for Paul. It was all about the gospel, the gospel ministry that he had. And Paul was convinced of the importance of Christ. He rejoiced about who Christ was. This section is dripping with joy as Paul has been thinking about the gospel ministry and sharing it with the, with the church. I've asked a number of times before, and we've considered what are those different pathways to joy. We've seen a number of different truths come from this section. In the midst of affliction, we can have joy in the furtherance of the gospel. We can rejoice when the gospel goes forth in spite of our difficult circumstances, whether that's through our own lips or the lips of others who are encouraged as they see our faith. Furthermore, we can have joy as we keep our eyes on the focus of the gospel, Christ himself, as we live in such a way for his glory that we have no regrets. As we look forward to his glory, viewing death as a means to have more of Christ, Again, not in a morbid, selfish, life is too difficult sense, but in the sense that we've lived our life for Christ, we know how valuable he is and we desire to have more of him. And not only that, but as we continue to seek to glorify Christ by building up others and all these things, we may found, find joy. The church has work to do. The church will continue to have work to do as outlined by our commander in chief prior to his ascension, we here at Catonsville Baptist Church have work to do. 
And we still have work to do, even as we find ourselves in the midst of difficult kinds of trials. But in order to be successful in that work, in the eyes of God, it starts with our heart attitude. It starts with the desire together to set our full attention on Jesus in order to see that he is magnified in our lives as individuals, but also as a body of believers for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for your love for us in Christ. Thank you for the joy that you give us in Christ as we serve you. As we proclaim the gospel truth to others, as we remind one another of the gospel truth and encourage each other with those things. Father, I pray that as we go through those difficult seasons of life, as we face suffering, as we face affliction, as we're about to sing in this last hymn, God, that we would keep our focus and attention on you. That we would not fall away, but that we continue drawing closer to you. That we'd remind ourselves that you are the big idea of life. That you are life for us. That the way we serve you is how you are glorified. That the way we serve one another is how you are glorified. And that doesn't change no matter what's going on and no matter what difficulties we face. And also that we are able to help each other in the midst of those afflictions. Father, help us to have those convictions and help us to draw nearer to Jesus so that we might give glory to him and so that we might find joy for him in those difficult seasons. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen.